What is it? The main thing I got from it was like this sense of feeling seen and validated. Well, why does it have to be this way? This book was placed in my hand for this moment. Insightful, learned a lot, wrote some quotes that I'm ready to like paint on my wall. I love this book! That we just kind of pull out some, some of the big themes that we see and, and talk about a few different ones. I apologize if most of my contribution has K-pop references. Alternative book title, The Feminine Mystique Part 2. You were really just gay all along. <laughs> Welcome to Book Club. With Julia. And Victoria. We are two lifelong friends who read a book and talk about it each episode. This is a podcast where we use books to explore new perspectives, and we use them as tools for personal and community growth. This week, we are reading Burnout by Emily and Amelia Nagoski, a self-help book, mostly for women, about how to deal with the constant stressors of life. This is a, you know, nonfiction, so there's not any, like, plot spoilers that we'll be spoiling, but, you know, if you prefer to read a book before you listen to it, this is your official warning. We will be talking about a lot of the stuff. But sometimes with nonfiction, the podcast is a replacement for reading the book if you don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome you know? to listen in wherever you are on your journey with or without this book. <laughs> Absolutely. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, we enjoy having you here, and mm -hmm. you are welcome to support us if you would like, if that's something you're into. We have a Buy Me a Coffee page, which is basically a membership group, and those members who support us monthly and annually get access to some cool things that Julie and I write specifically for members, as well as we've had a member-only event in the past. And uh, our members help us pick books for our podcast. So if you are interested in that, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash bookclubwithjv. Also on our website and in our show notes have links to a lot of the books and things that we mention. We only mention things that we particularly like ourselves or find relevant to throw in this episode. <laughs> and those links do go to uh, bookshop.org, which we are an affiliate of. And if you buy anything through our shop on their website, we do get a small kickback from Bookshop, which helps keep our show going. Helps us buy all these books. <laughs> <laughs> Helps us buy the books, honestly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what we mean by keep our show going is pay for our website and buy books. <laughs> and uh, sometimes we do some fun giveaways and things for our members. And lastly, if, if throwing money at our podcast is not something you want to or can do right now, you can subscribe <laughs> and rate and review. All those things are really great. And show us and others that you think the show is pretty cool. Yeah. But um, that's enough about our podcast. Let's talk about a book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just, it's really fun now that we're doing the self-promo stuff live. It's really fun watching your face while you do it because you just, <laughs> it's really clear how uncomfortable it makes you <laughs> to talk about and promote yourself. I can promote others all day long. That is literally yeah. my job is to help market and promote other people's awesome, amazing work. And then when it comes to my own people like, so your experience with podcast uh, promotion, I'm sure you've done a lot for your own show. And I'm like, honestly, I promote that the least. <laughs> Let me tell you about all the clients I've helped, not myself. Yeah. This is hard. I like, yeah. I don't bring it up with friends until we've known each other for a while. And then I'm like, so... <laughs> I'm a podcster. <laughs> I know we're really great at growing the show on our own, but that's why we have our wonderful listeners who tell people about it. <laughs> if you pity us for our inability to promote ourselves, we will accept that money to buy books. 
So Burnout. Yes, so Burnout. By Amelia and Emily Nagoski. Yes. I first heard of this book, actually, speaking of clients, one of my clients mentioned a specific episode of Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, in one of their podcasts. And as I was writing up show notes, I'm like, that sounds really cool. What is completing the stress cycle? I want to learn about this. And that episode was honestly a game changer. I was actively going for a walk while I listened to it. And like one of the key takeaways, which we'll get into, is completing the stress cycle. There's many things you can do. One of them that's sometimes the most time efficient and highly effective is moving your body. And I was like, oh, cool. That's I've kind of figured that one out without the science, but it's really cool to know that like that's what my body's doing when it's like, Victoria, go take a walk. You'll probably feel better than if you like sit in your little stress ball at your desk. So I was really excited. I shared the podcast with Julia and like we just started shorthand using like, oh, I got to complete the stress cycle or like, oh, I I realized like I, the the reaction I had was because I I had a lot of built up stress or like we, we just started using the language of Emily and Amelia Nagasi's book in like our everyday lives. But then we're like, maybe we should actually read the book and not just hear them talk about it on Brene Brown's podcast. So we chose to do it for the podcast before we'd read the book, knowing that we liked, you know, at least the core concept well mm-hmm. enough that we would have something to talk about. As an experiment, I bought an ebook of this through My Must Reads, which is like an Amazon alternative. I, I wouldn't even say competitor because they're not a strong competitor by any means. I wouldn't recommend. Usually we only talk about things that we like really like and would recommend. I do not recommend my must reads if you're going to find an ebook. I had to use it on my phone because it was through an app and I couldn't. Often when you buy ebooks, like you can send them to your Kindle account or whatever e-reader account you have, but it didn't, it wasn't like a PDF or like an actual it was weird. I could only read it through the app. Unless someone else knows how else to deal with this. So it wasn't the right file type or whatever? It wasn't the right file type, so I couldn't read it on my my e-reader. I had to read it on my phone with the app, which greatly decreased my ambition to like actually read this book. And the app is glitchy enough that like it was really hard to like flip back and forth between sections and like follow along with notes. And anyways, so it took me like a month and a half to read this. I really liked the beginning and I think I kind of petered out towards the middle. I think A lot of it was the e-reader situation. A lot of it was also kind of how the book was structured. (laughs) But we'll get into that. (laughs) But overall, experience reading, I still really hold to a lot of the concepts. And I think the book is doing something really great in the world of like self-help books. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about it with you. Yeah, so it's same origin story for me. Victoria shared the Brené Brown episode with me, and it was so helpful. I went and shared it with my mom, which I don't share a lot of podcast episodes with my mom, but it was like relevant to something we were talking about. And anyway, I came to this book specifically for the stuff about completing the stress cycle. You know, so I thought the podcast was like a little teaser for, you know, it's going to expand so much more in the rest of the book on this particular topic. But instead, the topic they spent the entire episode talking about was just the first chapter. And then it went in a direction that I was like very confused by. And I was, you know, it was a pleasant read. I was along for the ride and I found some great little nuggets, but I was very like, where are we going? Why are we going here? Within a chapter, I felt like we would cover like 12 different topics. And I was like, what is my takeaway here? It felt like it was trying to do a lot. Uh, So it's weirdly an easy read, but maybe didn't quite accomplish its goal, which we will talk about more. But I also did really enjoy, like, the sort of character of the authors. There are these Mm -hmm. twin sisters 
who are just like super nerdy and really love each other. And there's so many Star Trek references that <laughs> you could just tell they're like very personal. They have these like composite characters that like they tell stories about, you know, to hide the identities of the real people who experience that things. And there's one section that has this whole rant about the last episode of the original Star Trek series. And I was like, this sounds very personal. <laughs> is, is this something you needed to get off your chest? <laughs> I was laughing. And there's this amazing part where they tell you to think, to imagine these lab rats and they name one like Rafe Fines. And then they're like, never mind, it's not a rat, it's just Rafe Fines in a box. <laughs> and the floor is tilted. And it was, I was just cracking up. And then they named the other one Colin Firth. And they're like, he's a great swimmer. He had a lot of experience doing it in Pride and Prejudice. And he swam. <laughs> and I was just. That whole section was cracking me up. So, you know, this one's a good one for the nerds, I will say. If, you know, you find Star Trek references helpful for your personal journey. Honestly, I haven't even watched anything Star Trek, but I feel like the references are important to my personal journey. Yeah, they were really good. So, speaking of our authors, mm -hmm. a little bit about Emily and Amelia Nagoski. So, they are identical twin sisters. And Emily, she's a PhD and she's a sex educator and author she wrote the book, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life. And she talks about how there was one chapter of Come As You Are that kind of mm. starts getting into this stuff about the stress cycle. And so many people came up to her and were like, that chapter changed my life. Like, this is super important. She's like, okay, like, let's write a whole book about this. Let's delve into this more because it seems really important to people. So her job takes her all over the world to train therapists, medical professionals, college students, and the general public about the science of women's sexual well-being. Amelia has a doctorate of musical arts, and she was an associate professor and coordinator of music at Western New England University. She writes, <laughs> her job is to run around waving her arms and making funny noises and generally doing whatever it takes to help singers get in touch with their internal experience. So if you don't know much about core conducting, you might think like, or even music directing in general, you might think like, this is really weird. Like, sure, she's Emily's sister, but like, why is Amelia a part of this? Kind of their, the core of what they study comes down to how to listen and feel feelings. And they write a lot about Amelia's own experiences she shares in the book of crippling stress that impacted her health and recognizing how a lot of these core concepts that they're teaching in the book like she lived through like she had to learn these the hard way mm -hmm. and so you get a lot of her personal stories of how stress greatly negatively impacted her life while she was a student and how she actively works to increase the well-being of her own students now that she teaches so that's a little bit about them I think enough to get into the book because I know we have a lot we want to dig into today. Yeah, and their relationship is a big part of why the book got written. So I think that's an important piece. So this book is a little difficult to summarize. I feel like I say that a lot, but it is. <laughs> Every nonfiction book we read is like, it's a little difficult to summarize. It, there's so many topics, <laughs> but it encompasses a ton. So I think the goal of the book is to like help women deal with burnout by helping them understand like the context of why they're burned out and then give them some tools to cope with it. So there are three sections. The first is the more sort of concrete internal processes of what's happening when you're dealing with burnout. The second is basically just about the patriarchy. <laughs> and then the third section is Kind of back to some more practical things that you can do to help yourself be stronger and healthier. It feels very similar to the first section with like a little patriarchal interlude in the middle. 
this is very much a for women by women book. Like they're not, they don't pretend that they're writing this for everyone. Like they're just like, this is for women, which I don't know. I haven't decided how I feel about it yet, but they, you know, they acknowledge in the introduction that they wrote this book first and foremost for themselves and to help themselves heal from their own burnout. And then they knew they wanted to help their friends. And so they're like, okay, well, let's expand on that more. And they do a great job of addressing like systemic issues that aggravate stress or keep us in constant stress, like patriarchy or racism or capitalism, right? That kind of keeps you trapped out of necessity because in order to survive, you have to stay in these situations that aren't good for you. So that's a really cool thing that they did. That's very rare to find in a self-help book. Yeah, but that whole second section is that like exploration of all those external stressors that you can't just like wave a magic wand and use the right psychology informed tips and tools to like overcome. Yeah, it, it is nice to not have them say like, your life is entirely in your hands and it's all your fault that things are hard. Right. You know, it's like there are some bigger issues at play and here's what you can do in the middle of it. So yeah, that's that's kind of what the book is trying to do. Does it succeed? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So when when I read this book, and Julie and I, we were talking as we were both reading it, so we were kind of informing each other's experiences at the same time. Yeah. Of like, oh, I really like that part, and like, I did. There's a big part coming up that I'm. I don't know about. I don't really know <laughs> if I liked that approach. I think in general, we've kind of concluded on, and I will start with the core tenets of what this book is about and what the Nagasaki sisters are trying to teach us. Great. Yeah, I have no issue with what they're actually teaching. No. I think as two people who think a lot about science communication, Julia, as a current graduate student in the sciences, myself as a marketer and podcaster, primarily working with clients in the sciences, we think there are some approaches that don't quite resonate with us as readers. We are constantly thinking about what we do and do not like, what's effective, what's ineffective, what's helpful and not helpful in trying to talk about big, complex subjects in a way that like non-experts can understand, which is what this book is trying to do. Take science and make it digestible for the average woman in America reading this book. So we wanted to offer a bit of a feedback sandwich <laughs> as, <laughs> as we do in American culture of like, we can't just say negative things, some positives, squeeze in some negatives, and then conclude with some other positives um, about what we liked and about this book. So we'll start out with some things that we think were really awesome, uh, some core concepts that we think if you resonate with listening to us talking to about it, you'll really enjoy reading about it because they do a much better job than we will <laughs> of describing. Some things in the middle, not so much about what they were saying, but like how they were sharing some key insights. Mm -hmm. We think some of the analogies and some of the references kind of fell a little flat or were more complicated and confusing than actually helpful. And then we'll close out with one of the other big takeaways that we have that we thought was really awesome and has shaped really how we think about certain certain things our minds and bodies do when we're un undergoing stress mm -hmm. let's make a sandwich i literally labeled this in our notes as bread number one <laughs> <laughs> so some positive bread as we've already mentioned the thing that got us into this book and honestly our favorite takeaway still after reading it is sort of the main thing the book is about the chapter on how to complete your emotional stress cycle. I really think that they, if we're talking about science communication, like they really nailed it with this one. 
I have been trying to replicate <laughs> how the Nagasi sisters talk about completing the stress cycle because I, I mention it all the time with like yeah. loved ones and like people in my circle and they do a really good job and I will try my best to explain this concept as well as they do. Basically, just because you've dealt with a stressor of a situation doesn't mean you've dealt with the stress itself. So when our body enters stress that like fight flight or freeze like when your body is like presented with an issue that heightens your stress response just because that initial stressor goes away doesn't mean that the whole stress cycle has completed within your body they get into the science of like what is actually happening in your body but basically it's like if you have i'll give an example from my own life I was walking home from dropping off my passport application at the post office, actually my renewal, because I need my passport renewed. And it took me six months to finally get my butt to the post office to do it. And I was like, awesome. Completed that task walking home. As I'm walking home, a man on the street yells some sexually charged language at me that is very, very uncomfortable. And I just keep walking and thankfully I'm in a public enough place that I don't think I'm actually gonna get harmed. But I was like, that was really mightily uncomfortable. I do not like that. And I walked the rest of the way home and my partner and his brother were here and we're like, oh, let's all go to dinner. And so we would have to walk back down that street that I had Mm. just walked on. And I said, can we go a different way? And they're like, huh? And I'm like, you know what? Something happened today. And while I'm not actually harmed, I still feel very uncomfortable. And I don't know if I'll like be okay to walk down that street right now. I had read this book. So was acknowledging the fact that like it activated a stress response. And even though the stressor was no longer there, I wasn't actually going to be harmed. My body was still carrying all that stress. My release ended up being in comfort with my loved ones around me, being able to cry a little bit, (laughs) and then to go on a long walk, the long way around to the destination we were going to. So we didn't have to walk down that street, and I also moved my body. So that was kind of how I completed that cycle, was talking about it, crying about it, and then going and moving my body. And then eventually the stress kind of like, you know, left my body and it no longer was like making me on the brink of breaking down or crying or like exploding in the situation. Mm -hmm. So there's sometimes when we can't complete the cycle like in the moment that they talk about and like a big one is a chronic stressor can lead to chronic stress. So if you wake up every single day to a barrage of emails from your manager who like doesn't respect your time and expects you to answer first thing in the morning, like that stress may not go away if you are still in that position and it's ongoing. Chronic stressors can also be like, they talk about in depth more in the second section, bigger systemic issues like racism, sexism, homophobia that would constantly be creating stress in your life to deal with. Sometimes it's not socially appropriate in the moment to uh, complete the cycle. So if you're in a meeting with said manager and they say something that kind of takes you off, like you really need this job and you don't want to like (laughs) get fired Mm -hmm. on the spot. So maybe you push it all down and you act polite to their face and then you go home and you like bitch about it to your best friend. (laughs) And then like in the scenario I explained, like it was safer for me to just keep walking instead of trying to like engage the situation, which might've like elevated it for me to yell back at that person. Like that is misogynistic and not okay that you say those things to my face when I walk by. Like that could have been potentially harmful to me. So sometimes you have to like suppress what's going on or you can't deal with it in the moment. And so then you need to complete the cycle later. So it's kind of some of the things I mentioned, like the number one way is through physical activity, which is literally any movement of your body. They give some great examples of like if exercise is difficult or not helpful for you of ways you can move your body that would also release some of that stress. Other things are like 
breathing exercises, having positive social interactions, laughter, affection, like hugging or kissing, or just cuddling, sitting close to someone, having a big old cry, or creative expression. So if you are dancing or writing or making something with your hands, sometimes that is a way to release the rest of the pent-up stress and complete that cycle in your body. Yeah, so there are two sort of like visual narratives that they give that I think were really helpful for like understanding what's happening. The first thing they do is they explain the emotions from like an evolutionary perspective. So early humans, we needed our emotions to send physical hormones through our body to kind of kickstart certain things so that we could be prepared to fight off predators or run away from them in order to escape, in order to get rid of the stressor. So the stressor was a literal life-threatening situation and either we would fight it off and defeat it and then you'd have the emotional relief of it's dead or (laughs) you would run and outrun it and then get back to wherever your family was and have the emotional relief of like reconnecting with your family and calming down and whatever. Except our daily lives are not like that. We have all these really tiny stressors that are not life-threatening, but our brain doesn't really know the difference. So that's why we see an email from our boss and the same thing happens to our body that it would if there was a bear. Except you can't fight off the email, you have to eventually respond to it if you want to keep your job. And so you have to put yourself through that stress and then keep working, sitting in a chair all day, not moving, not talking about it. And so it pushes all those emotions into this little corner of your brain and doesn't let you deal with it. And eventually you just kind of explode or get super exhausted or whatever. So there's fight or flight, but there's also faint. So I think freeze is like if you're going to hide from a predator, you like literally drop to the ground and hide. And then faint is if you're already caught, right? So you think of like a lion's hunting a gazelle, gazelle's running away, gazelle gets caught. It's in the jaws of the lion. It plays dead. It literally faints. And then the lion sets down the gazelle and is like, kids, it's dinner time. And then the gazelle's body literally starts like shaking, releasing all those stress hormones so that it has suddenly has this huge burst of energy so that it can run away, potentially get away. So that's actually also a very common response is the faint where you know that you can't escape the stressor that you're in and you know that you can't fight it, right? Like the email from your boss. So you just kind of stop. You just you know, roll over. But you never give yourself the opportunity to like release all of that tension that you just held. And so then you're just carrying it around. I feel like that's a really common one now in the way that we deal with things. Because we tell ourselves, oh, this isn't a real problem. I shouldn't be that Mm -hmm. stressed about it. And so that whole like visual of understanding, okay, this is what my body's doing, even if it's not necessarily appropriate for the situation anymore. And then the other thing, this visual that they gave was like a tunnel. So your emotional process is like a tunnel and you can't just jump out of the tunnel whenever you think you're done. So you have to keep going through it until the emotion is done. You know, emotions have cycles. They have chemical processes. They have physical processes that you go through and you just gotta let them happen. You know, like you you eventually stop crying. Even if you're like sobbing, you know, if you're having one of those really big cries because you just can't deal with anything anymore, eventually you stop. And you're just like, huh, I wonder why I stopped. Your body's just done. It released all the things it needed to release. It feels more relaxed. 
It completed its cycle. Now you can, you know, get a drink of water, chat to your friend, go get some ice cream, start feeling better. That's why crying makes you feel better, you know? Sometimes you just need it. One of the big takeaways for me in the podcast, like the first time I heard any of this, the episode with um, Brene Brown, is their discussion of crying and like what works about it. Mm -hmm. Because I, (laughs) if you've listened to this podcast before, (laughs) (laughs) I cry a lot. They talk about the most helpful thing during crying is just focusing on what it feels like to be crying. Live into the cry, like into the emotional experience in that moment of crying, but don't feed the crying. So for me, my anxiety spirals will usually result in me crying so hard I'm like in pain (laughs) from the crying and it doesn't stop because my anxiety will continue to feed it more things to cry about. Like a really bad time this happened was I returned from a trip and my partner said one small thing that I read as criticism and it sent me on like a half hour spiral. And what really was happening was... I had not eaten enough, I had not slept enough, I had not drank enough water, I was stressed about work, and then this one negative thing was said to me, or I perceived as negative, and then I just started coming up with all the negative things about me, and then being upset that I was upset, and maybe upsetting my partner because I was upset and couldn't explain why I was upset, and so then I was like mad at myself for being emotional. And so then I was beating myself up about that. And so then it just like, again, that's why it's called like a spiral because it just like keeps adding and adding and adding. And instead of completing the cycle, so a circle connects on both ends, a spiral, I'm coming up with this on the fly. I don't know if this is a real thing. But to me, a spiral is like a slinky where it just continues and continues and continues and you you don't get back to the starting place. You're building on it and you're coming up with other reasons to circle and circle and circle, but you're not actually completing any sort of cycle. So learning this just like, tiniest thing was a game changer for me of like when I'm crying I don't think about why I'm crying I don't try to figure out why I'm crying Mm -hmm. I just experience the cry and acknowledge that my body had some stress it needed to relieve and after I cry maybe then if it feels appropriate I'll try to figure out why I cried otherwise I just let it be and just be like yeah I cried today full stop instead of my usual attempts to like explain it away or understand it or like give reason to the emotion because that's just a very good reason to tell yourself it was unreasonable to be emotion mm-hmm. <laughs> emotional so yeah the crying thing was was a big one for me that's a great example of like how dealing with the stress is not the same as dealing with the stressor like knowing why you're crying is the stressor but the most important thing is to deal with the stress that's actually happening in your body regardless of what caused it because we don't necessarily know what caused it all the time. I feel like for me the importance of movement, the importance of moving your body because you always get these preachy things of like oh you'll be so much healthier if you exercise more but they present it in the sense of like oh you need to like run five miles every day or you need to take all these classes you need to be in this kind of shape and you're just like gross here they just present like your emotions are part of a physical process and part of what helps complete that process is for you to just physically move it doesn't have to be anything fancy you just like don't keep sitting in that chair that you're in right now get up and go sit in a different chair walk around your room in a couple circles like put on some music and snap your fingers do some stretches take a break and go walk downstairs and like do your dishes real quick and then come back you know some like really simple repetitive movements and they even gave some examples for people who have like mobility constraints 
where you can do these like muscle tension things, like mindful muscle tension. It doesn't have to be anything fancy, um, but it's more like a call to pay attention to when you're feeling overwhelmed and just give yourself some little movement. And I think it was also nice for me to like let myself lean into autism's way of dealing with stress, which is mm. repetitive movement called stimming, right? So like knowing just how good that is for me completely shifted my whole perspective on it. Like rather than like, oh, this is something I have to do or oh, it's some weird thing that I do. Like, no, no, this is me helping my body heal, helping my body process. This is like a really strong tool. Yeah, I think it definitely helped me move <laughs> movement up the priority list of my life. Because mm -hmm. again, things like exercise is good for your physical and mental well-being. Cool. Shovel that away with all the thousand other things that are good for my physical and mental well-being. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but when I recognize things like, oh, I know firsthand the difficulties of living with too much stress. Like I, I call it my stress sickness. Like I will make myself sick if I'm too stressed. One of the biggest things I've known to like combat that is sleep. And like moving my body, like the healthiest I've ever been sometimes has been periods of my life where I, for whatever reason, have like extended opportunity to move and sleep a lot. And I just don't get sick. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Who would have thought? And a lot of those times, it's not that I've even removed any of the stressors in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, like maybe I'm still at one point in my life is because I was unemployed, which is an extremely stressful situation. But it gave me a lot of time for things like sleep and movement. And I felt like the immediate need to try to like cope as well as I could. And those things that we're told and, and if we think about it, like, oh, that, that does, does feel good to like go for a walk in the middle of the day if I'm feeling like really low are really great. So yeah, reading the book just helped me like solidify like, oh, this is like a, a high priority thing. Yeah. Like I can recognize stress in every single day. Sometimes I'm emotionally feeling pretty good, but like I know, you know what, that situation is actually stressful. And even if I think I'm okay, I should probably just like do the things I know helps complete the cycle so it doesn't build up. It doesn't become the Victoria did not sleep enough, drink enough water, is stressed with work, and now she's spiraling. It's like, well, we can like take care of those things on a regular basis, like maintenance, <laughs> like just maintaining my like little stress cycle over here so it doesn't like become a stress monster. Absolutely. Yeah. So clearly we loved that part of the book. Yes. Highly recommend that first chapter. Highly, highly, highly recommend. But after that, things get a little dicey. Here's a little, a little slice of turkey and provolone in the middle of our sandwich, our <laughs> feedback sandwich of like, here's some negatives that we think could be improved upon in future iterations. The negative meat, if you will. <laughs> Yeah, so once we left the first section, really the first chapter, but especially the first section, every single chapter had this thought process of like, wait, 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 what is this book about? And like, where are we going exactly? Like, I, I couldn't really track like the shape of the book or the trajectory of the book. And I couldn't quite see how all the pieces fit together because there were so many pieces and they weren't in an order that I could really process. And there were moments towards the end of the book, I was like, so what is this book about again? Like, I felt like I had it at the beginning and then I really got in the weeds and towards the end and I was like, I feel like I lost the plot a little bit. And by the end I was like, I think 
this book might be trying to solve like the entire experience of being a woman. Just solve all of it all at once in one book. And I was like, I think they tried to tackle a little too much. But I don't know. What what was your experience of that? I, I mostly agree, yeah. I think for the first few chapters, that first section, I was like, yes, here we go. I'm here for this. We'll get into uh, stuff about the monitor. If you've read the book, you know what that is. We'll, at the end of the episode, that was fantastic. I was drawing so many parallels to my own life and like really enjoyed it. And then sometimes I got lost in that middle section. Mm-hmm. Like I, I could see what they were trying to do in some ways. And other ways I was like, cool, that's interesting to have a a whole section on like body image. Yeah. And then moving on. And it's like, it felt like there is so much complexity to the experience of women. And they were trying to honor, which I really, really appreciate, they're trying to honor the complexity and the intersectionality of our Mm -hmm. experiences to recognize that like, okay, it's one thing to complete the stress cycle as your average white woman who is represented in a lot of media and culture and politics and has a lot of privilege because of that. And it's another to try to manage and complete your stress cycle as a woman who's marginalized in many ways, whether it's as a trans woman, a woman of color, a woman who's fat, or a woman who has disabilities. And like, they they try to hit on all these intersectionalities, but that also then kind of felt like I was a little lost in some of it. Yeah, I think part of what felt kind of confusing was the chapters at the end are sort of expansions on things that were already talked about in the first three chapters, where they sort of take a chunk, chapter one, about the importance of moving your body or the importance of connection or something. They take that section. Or, like, the body image chapter felt very much like a reiteration or an expansion on the patriarchy chapter. And I was confused why it needed to be its own chapter. It felt like they would be writing about something and really, you know, going in a certain direction. And then they would find a topic and then be like, oh my God, this is also really important. We also need to have a whole chapter about this. And oh my God, this is also really important. We also need to have a whole section within the chapter about this. And they just kept picking things up as they were going along. And like everything they covered was really important. You know what I mean? Like I, mm-hmm. I have no objection to like the fact that they acknowledge that these things are important, but you know, you can only do one book at a time. It felt like this book was trying to be multiple books. I think it could have been a series easily, Mm -hmm. you know? And this is something that I really relate to and struggle with as a writer is I try to include everything. I'm like, I got to get all the facets. I have to cover every single sub point and eventuality to make sure that everyone's on the same page. We got to cover all the bases. And it's like, you get away from the original narrative a bit and get kind of lost and like, okay, where are we going again? And so sometimes you got to cut really good stuff. Sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're writing, you have to cut a chapter or a sentence to you're like, oh my God, that is the best sentence I've ever wrote ever in my life. And I have to cut it because it doesn't fit here, you know? And he, yeah. like, you gotta let it go. I think they definitely could have benefited from some sections of this is really important and this is a whole other book. In the back, we have some recommendations if this is something that really resonates with you, which they did give a lot of footnotes and other mm-hmm. extended reading, which is great. Yes. I also resonate with the wanting to like do everything in one place. I think it's also difficult as 
when it comes to science communication is deciding at what point you're going to assume the reader knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Because if you start explaining everything, all of a sudden you're back in like first grade and talking about how prepositions work. And or <laughs> I mean, you don't even do that in first grade. That's like fifth grade, but whatever. Um, <laughs> like it's so difficult. And like, I feel like I run into this a lot in helping scientists communicate their own work. And we, we constantly have to like thread the needle on like, okay, this is not a term our readers will understand. Let's define this one. That's a term we don't have time to dig into. How can we get people in the right direction with that um, to keep moving? So I resonate with the, the difficulties we kind of experience in this middle section. I think stuff about the patriarchy was really fascinating because it, it kind of assumed the reader may not necessarily acknowledge the patriarchy's impact on their life or yeah. perhaps like is turned off by the vague notion of feminism that they haven't quite unpacked to understand how it impacts their life, which feels like a really different audience and maybe a different book in some ways than what they would mm-hmm. write a lot of this to. I don't know. I, I, I can't say they were right or wrong for like including this exposition on the patriarchy. I thought it was a little heavy handed to like put the word UG next to every time they use the word patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it seems like there's some, there was definitely a conversation there of like, okay, we need to flush this out. We need to talk about it. We need to acknowledge that, like, just throwing the word patriarchy in there might be off-putting to some people. So, like, let's explain, like, what we mean by that and how it impacts our lives. So this is, like, a, a wishy-washy negative me to me. It's, like, I'm, I'm not saying anything, like, super constric- uh, constructive. I'm just saying, like, it didn't totally work for me, but I can yeah. see what they're trying to do. I think it could have worked really well if the patriarchy thing was in the introduction and then was just kind of peppered throughout every single topic because they bring it up in every single chapter. Right. And then they also have a chapter explaining it in greater detail with more references. But it's really like the perspective, it's the point of view of the entire book and it goes everywhere. You know, it's kind of, that's kind of the point. So I think there is a version of this book where... You explain in the introduction, we're looking at this from the perspective of how to handle the patriarchy, essentially, (laughs) you know, the stressors of the patriarchy. And here's how you take care of your body. And here's how you deal with your emotions and your inner critic and like all these other things. And the first section and the the last section, there are some redundancies there, but mostly go together and I think could work in a more linear fashion. So yeah, I think if I were the editor, that's what I would have done you know is like that it's not about burnout it's about specifically patriarchy burnout or whatever it may be you know like the unique flavor of burnout in women yes (laughs) compared to like just burnout in general it is interesting because when i've talked about the book i realized the title says nothing about this being a book for women yeah which is okay but it does also feel odd I'm like it's a really great concept I think everyone should understand it but I don't know if I would recommend this book to like all people in my life because like a lot of unless they're interested which I think is great to learn about the experiences of women cool but like that's not who the book is written for yeah it is I mean at least the copy that I got the cover is pink (laughs) someone at the publishing house was like okay I know you don't want to say women or feminism in the title but like hello (laughs) I need to just (laughs) We're going to pinkwash this one because it, <laughs> usually that's a bad thing, but in this case, we need to. <laughs> yeah. We need, we need to attract the right audience. Yeah. I, th- I think some 
clarity of purpose could have gone a long way here. Okay, so that sort of deals with the book as a whole. And then we had two small things that we got very upset about. <laughs> I know, this is just where mine and Julia's specific interests really come out. So I was loving the, it was not even a full chapter, it was just part of a chapter about sleep. I thought it was great. I think it's really important that we get a lot of sleep. I talked about my own struggles with stress usually are exasperated by my inability to like force myself to rest. I just do not get enough rest. I really liked how they framed rest as not just active sleeping time, but like the time that you spend getting ready for bed, the time you spend sitting on the couch with no agenda, connecting with a loved one. Like it's not, it's just like letting your mind and body rest and not be connected to all those stresses in your life. However, (laughs) there is one specific section where they reference a book by Matthew Walker, who I actually watched his entire masterclass. I thought it was very fascinating. It's all about sleep. And I was like, cool, it's this researcher, he has a sleep lab at like a notable University of California school, like, it's a big deal. And then I listened to an episode of Maintenance Phase, which I've talked about on this podcast before. (laughs) And I, if you're into science communication, they are a hoot to listen to and really great at kind of like irreverently digging into myths and ideas and products and books and services in the general wellness space, and kind of debunking what's a myth or like kind of questioning like does this is this actually helpful uh information for everyone in the world to be told over and over again like you're doing it wrong so fascinating podcast and the hosts of that show talk about the specific book i don't feel the need to reference it by <laughs> the specific book that they reference in burnout by matthew walker isn't necessarily the best example i think it's a really bad example of science communication where like the underlying research is not wrong it's the way that the book was constructed and written mm-hmm. where there's just like lazy errors they identified in the in the writing like okay, they cite this statistic, but that's really not what the research said. Or they, they cite these numbers, but those numbers are actually just inaccurate. Like they just copied the numbers wrong, human error. So there's a lot of like sloppy statistical inaccuracies. And also kind of like often you will find in wellness spaces, especially this idea of like, oh my gosh, this is an epidemic. This is a huge, huge, huge bad thing to kind of like bring attention to it. Whereas like ultimately they're like, we wouldn't say sleep loss epidemic is actually what's happening, but also like sleep is important. And like, if your body needs seven hours or nine hours or 10 hours, like figure out what your body needs and get enough sleep. But like, that's not really sexy. And that doesn't really sell books to tell them something, to tell people something we've known for so long, which is like, you need sleep. So all this is to say, I am kind of disappointed in Matthew Walker's book (laughs) after learning all that, because I did think his TED or his masterclass was interesting, but it is kind of annoying to hear like, oh, like, something that's been like overly hyped to get a lot of mass appeal, even if it's not like actually what the science is saying is like very disappointing. Mm -hmm. But I will say in Burnout, they only reference this book in kind of the line of sleep is very important and you need it, which I think is like accurate. That's not the part that Maintenance Veins was trying to debunk. I just think if you're going to cite a book, pick like the best, (laughs) most (laughs) scholarly upheld (laughs) uh, citation that you can give for a claim you're going to make. I also will say that I really liked the Nagasaki sisters' discussion of rest and recognizing that it's not necessarily individuals who are making poor sleep habit choices, but that we live in a system and with certain pressures on women that we do not often allow ourselves the rest that we need and to claim the rest we need is an act of resistance. And so overall, 
I have no complaints about how the Nagasi sisters write about sleep. Yeah. <laughs> I do complain that they cited someone whose book has been criticized for not being scientifically accurate in the portrayal of how big of a deal sleep loss is to the American public. Yeah. That was a long way of saying, just pick a different citation. There's a lot of great ones out there. Yeah, that is that is a big thing, especially in science journalism that you'll see is kind of over-exaggerating data to try and sell books or airtime or whatever. Like that's yeah. that's a huge because it's it's hard to get people interested in it. And I think people also get really exhausted by especially like health research where every other year there's like contradicting like coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you, wine's good for you, wine's bad for you. Like wine will cure your cancer or will like kill you in your sleep. Like there's no, you know what I mean? Like it's just kind yeah. of, and I, people get really exhausted by it. And I, and so to try to kind of sell popular science, they really blow things out of proportion. And that is, that is a very common problem. The other problem with the, <laughs> that's like one section of one chapter that really got to me. There's a chapter on, I honestly, I'm not 100% sure what the whole chapter was about, because again, it was a chapter that tried to do everything. But this one section, they reference this book of feminist literary criticism called The Mad Woman in the Attic. And they take that title of the book and use it as a metaphor for your inner critic. And as they were using it, I got so lost <laughs> in like what they were trying to say because I, I've read Gilbert and Gubar. They're the authors who wrote the book, The Mad Woman in the Attic. And I was like, I don't think this is what those writers meant. So I'm really confused what exactly you're trying to get me to understand. And it took a long time for me to come around. So... I wanted to clarify some things. So <laughs> The Mad Woman in the Attic, the book by Gilbert and Gubar is a sort of seminal work of feminist literary criticism from the late 70s. And it's about specifically the way that female writers were sort of dealing with this dichotomy for their female characters. So they had to sort of split their characters into two sections. They were either the very pure and angelic characters or kind of the, the crazy ones, right? The mad women. Because those were kind of the only two roles available to women at the time, especially in the literary world. And so in the process, they were kind of splitting themselves as women, as writers. And so the authors of this book use Jane Eyre as kind of the most iconic example. It's also where the title comes from because there's Jane Eyre, the hero of the story, right? And then there's literally a mad woman in the attic. Her name is Bertha. She is Mr. Rochester's wife that he keeps hidden in the attic. And we did talk about this in the Jane Eyre episode, if you want to go listen to that in greater detail. But basically, the mad woman in the attic, Bertha, has to die in order for Jane to sort of come into her power and take her rightful place. And so, symbolically, the authors analyze this and they say, okay, well, this is, in a way, this is Jane killing off part of herself the wilder parts of herself in order to be successful as a woman. And they're ultimately trying to argue to get rid of the dichotomy completely. So that's the mad woman in the attic. This is the mad woman in the attic that if you 
studied English literature or feminist <laughs> criticism, you were like, oh, Mad Woman in the Attic, I know this. This is yeah. killing off, you know, we, we're creating this dichotomy and we, we have to kind of kill ourselves to live kind of deal. But like, ultimately, we should just get rid of the dichotomy altogether for the sake and well-being of women everywhere, fictional and real. Yes. Then this other feminist scholar, Peggy McIntosh, I haven't read any of her work, but she has a paper on like imposter syndrome, basically, and your own inner critic as a woman that the Nagoski sisters quote in this section. And they sort of argue that she is talking about her inner critic. They're saying that that inner critic is the mad woman in the attic. And that's not what the original book said. So they're approaching, <laughs> they're using a label, a very iconic label, and applying it to a psychology concept that they got inspired by from this other feminist writer about imposter syndrome. And it just gets really lost. There's so many layers that it's like um, a, an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation. And at a certain point, you're like, I don't know what you're saying. Yeah, I found it interesting, too. I was primed a bit because you'd already read the section. and You're like, there's some stuff about a mad woman in the attic that I don't know how I feel about it. So I, I kind of approached it with caution. <laughs> yeah. And then I, I gave it actually two reads. First time I was kind of like just kind of skimming because I was already kind of like, I don't understand. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to give it like a full hearted read <laughs> to like see how much I understand this. But I, I was confused about who or what I was supposed to be identifying as my mad woman until we get to a part where they're kind of composite character of Julie, which I really like those narrative bits, by yeah. the way, of Julie and Sophie. They're very interesting and help kind of put examples to some of these concepts. Julie identifies her mad woman as almost the inner child. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, I've heard of the inner child thing. But it was weird to me that like, oh, your mad woman could be your inner child, or maybe it's not. And I also, with my own English literature background, came in reading The Mad Woman in the Attic as like a dichotomy to be abolished, not a part of yourself to be embraced. So you might read this and you, or if you've already read, read this and weren't tainted by our own conversation we're having now, <laughs> you might be totally fine with this whole thing because you're like, oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. This concept from Jane Eyre, I'm familiar with the book. Cool. It's another metaphor I can grab onto. I think our argument here is like, if you're going to use a metaphor, either it needs to be a brand new one or it needs to align with whatever the original metaphor was intended to be. Yeah. Or you're just going to confuse the heck out of people who are already aware <laughs> of what feminist critics were trying to do with this metaphor in the past. Yeah. I think. You made a good point of like, they were trying to use the concept of the mad woman in the attic as like a pop culture reference that you're pulling from in order to make a metaphor that's more accessible, right? But instead of that, they pulled more from a whole other field of research that has all these layers and layers and layers to it that is just going to trip people up. Yeah, I think that's the biggest issue is like, call it something else. I, I don't I don't even know if the Jane Eyre metaphor quite works, but they said it really resonated with them. So I'm hesitant to like yuck their yums, but I'm just like, and then when they try to explain it in terms of the examples of, of what the mad one might look like or might sound like, there's no clear through line of like who this character, this internal character is. Because you have this image of this, okay, there's a crazy woman in the attic. And then 
it's like a child and sometimes it's like the perfect version of yourself. So like it's the better version of yourself, not the crazy version. Or it's like a mother figure. Like there's so many. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to like my mad woman. Yeah. Or not. Or suppress her or tell her everything's going to be okay and I don't need you anymore. I wasn't sure what message I was supposed to be giving to my mad woman. And I wonder too if this was like, again, an example of maybe trying to do a little too much. Yeah. But other times when they've had like a very specific concept they're trying to teach, they'll like give you the actual psychology world term and be like, that term's too difficult for us. So we're going to use, or like for like people to remember and what it means. So we came up with this other metaphor that really works. In this case, I feel like the bad woman in the attic was a rough starting point and then wasn't like a one-to-one metaphor for a specific concept. Or if it was, they did not communicate that. <laughs> so moving on to bread number two, the bottom bun or the top bun, depending on how we're building the sandwich. Um, <laughs> as you mentioned, the monitor, this mm-hmm. was a concept that you and I both gravitate towards that was very helpful and interesting so let's talk a little bit about what the monitor is and then kind of like what we resonated with yeah so the monitor is just what they call it in the book that's not like the technical term it's the discrepancy reducing slash increasing feedback loop oh boy it's the official name (laughs) and they're like yeah that's not very catchy we're calling it the monitor So yeah, it's basically the gap between where you are and where you want to be and like how you're going to get there. And it's constantly reevaluating whether continuing on is worth it, um, whether the end result is likely enough um, in order for it to be worth the struggle for you to get there. So if you can put in less effort and get more progress, your monitor is happy because it's that's a good ratio of less work, more payoff versus if you have a lot of effort and no progress, your monitor is constantly starting to reassess. Like if you're going somewhere and you get stuck in traffic, this is the example they give, and the traffic keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. This literally happened to me when I was trying to get back to Belgium from California. <laughs> yeah. I got stuck in this massive traffic jam because the five was closed because of the snow. We, I just kept reevaluating and reevaluating. Okay, okay, we're going to get there like an hour before the flight. Okay, we're going to get there 45 minutes before. So I need to be checked in before I get there. So I need to do all my things. Okay, the check-in isn't working. And now it still says that we're going to get there like when the flight is taking off. So you're constantly reevaluating. And then at a certain point, you're like, this is no longer worth it. So I'm going to abandon it. So it moves from being attainable to unattainable. And then when you abandon it, you sort of go into this despair mode where it's like, oh my God, this isn't even worth it anymore. What's the point in trying? And you kind of give up and you find a different goal. And I did give up. I went home and I got a different flight because <laughs> it wasn't oh my worth it. We both had similar travel stories literally within, I think about it the same day or within a day of each other. Very different, but also very similar that it made us think of the monitor. I was actually reading this chapter while this happened to me. I was sitting at an airport and I read the first part of the chapter while I was waiting for my flight. And then my flight was boarding. So I put my book away and I stood up and they announced, not that they were boarding actually, that they were delayed like 45 minutes or so. 
And so then I was like, okay, whatever, I'll go sit down. But by then, my original seat was taken by someone else. This is like peak Omicron or ramping up to peak Omicron. And I was like, I do not want to sit near these people. I'm going to go find a gate that's a lot less packed and then just come back when my flight's actually boarding. So I was a couple gates down. There was more seating. I pull up my notebook. I'm literally writing notes on this section. I'm making a packing list for my my next trip I'm going to be taking. I keep checking the flight status and it gets delayed another 20 minutes. So I'm like, okay, I've got more time. And fast forward and I just missed my flight. Like oh I was far enough away. I didn't hear the final boarding call. Oh no. And so I kept telling myself, I have time, I have time, I have time. And I walk up 20 minutes before the flight takes off, but they close the door 20 minutes before the flight takes off, which I'm a well-seasoned traveler and forgot that. And I think that's also what like made my monitor go berserk. Yeah. <laughs> so I like, I can feel the stress coming. I'm like tense in my chest. I'm getting hot. I'm like a little panicky and sweaty. And the, uh, person that's checking in comes back and she's like hello can I help you I'm like I need to get on this flight and she's like I'm sorry I called this flight like 17 times the door is closed you can't get on this flight so I was like okay and like holding back all my instincts to just yell (laughs) which I'm not much of a yeller but I was like keep it calm Victoria she's she's just trying to help you were the one in the wrong (laughs) so she books me on the next flight out I've got like two hours to wait and I walk as fast as I can to the nearest restroom and tears are like streaming down my face. I get into a stall and I just like lose it. And like my mind does the full despair of the monitors uh, that they were talking about of like, this isn't worth it. None of this is worth it. I like wanted to be home, but like that's where I was going, was back to my parents' <laughs> home. Like I just like, I wanted to give up on everything. Like I didn't want to tell anyone, but yeah, I went total despair. Like I just wanted to like, run away and like crawl in a hole and like I didn't know what I wanted like nothing felt like it was gonna help even though like I had done what I could like it was all right and so eventually I like completed my stress cycle through crying (laughs) and connecting with my loved ones I went and sat at my next gate staring directly at the door (laughs) (laughs) and um my partner Venmoed me some money to order a beer, which at the Newark airport, you can order directly to your gate where you're sitting at. And I made the next flight. But when I sat back down, that's immediately when I started reading the bit about despair. <laughs> mm. I was like, oh my gosh, I literally just did this. Like the point of like, your monitor just gives out and it's like, we cannot handle, we are donezo. Let's just despair. Even though it's like, there are other options here. <laughs> Let us discuss our other options yeah. and move forward. So it was a really eye-opening thing to read. Like literally as I was experiencing this whole wow. swing of emotions. It was incredible. That's crazy timing. That's such yeah. good timing. <laughs> you literally have the tools right in front of you to understand what is happening to you in that moment. That's great. This was, I think, the only concept that was like totally new to me reading this book. So I think that's why it sticks in my head so much because like completing the cycle, I'd already listened to a podcast about it. And so it was like extra information. But this chapter, I was like, whoa. And I made, I started making so many connections in my head, you know, like those memes where there's like math above your head. I feel like that happened because when they talked about like the goal switching from attainable to unattainable and like the emotional reaction, I suddenly started making all these connections. I realized like this monitor function is, I think is part of the sort of executive functioning that autistic people 
like myself, have trouble with. It's like you're in her secretary kind of, and this is one of their jobs is right to like evaluate the amount of work, how long it's going to take, what it's going to take to get there. And then as you moving along, understanding how you're progressing, whether it's still worth it, whether you need to adjust your goals or adjust your methods as you go or adjust like your time frame or something. That stuff is really, really hard for my brain to do. And it doesn't really do it well automatically. Like I kind of have to do it manually, you know? I have to like decide <laughs> and I'm not very good at it. So a lot of times this looks like either extreme stubbornness, like I just will not change my goal or my schedule or my mind, or extreme indecision where I physically can't make a decision. And I, so many times, all these examples came into my head of like me wandering around a city lost trying to find a restaurant or something and refusing to stop and reevaluate my situation because like all I can think about is like my goal is to find this restaurant. I don't know how to switch to a new goal or to reevaluate. And so I'm like exhausted. I'm lost. I need to pee really, really bad. And I, I just keep wandering in circles for hours until eventually I really do find the thing, but at what cost? Uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or if I haven't made a plan ahead of time of like what my goal is and how I'm going to get there, by the time I need to start doing the thing, it's too late. So if I'm trying to find food and I haven't decided where I'm going to get that food and I'm hungry, it is too late. Decision-making skills are gone. They are out the door. <laughs> I, I will wander around and slowly die of starvation because I can't make a decision on where I, to eat because I didn't make a plan. I didn't like figure out how I was going to achieve that plan. So I either go by my plan to the letter or I don't make one at all. And like I lose all ability to evaluate like cost benefit analysis, right? Which is kind of what your monitor is doing. My, my brother and I like to remind each other that we don't have to do things because we'll get so stuck in an idea. So sometimes my brother and I have to rem remind each other like, hey, remember you don't have to do that. And it feels like this sudden revelation of like, oh my God, I don't have to do that. Why does that feel so strange? <laughs> like I need like an active intervention to like shift course. Um, yeah, so learning about the mechanics of how that cycle works, so helpful. I feel like I'm gonna be seeing things in a whole new light now. I really like your point about like, sometimes you just need that outside person to like shine a light on the monitor <laughs> to be like, you realize you set that goal for yourself. I feel like your example with food is such a great example <laughs> for me as well. Cause I also will like, just like all of a sudden, like I'm hungry now and I did not plan for this yeah. and I do not know what <laughs> to do about it. And if I'm out and about and like, I can't just like walk to my fridge and get something. Even sometimes when I'm in the house and I just like think like, no, dinner is happening later. I cannot eat yet. My partner will remind me of like, you can eat whenever. Yeah. Like if you're hungry, go eat. And like early on when we were dating, it was very sweet. We would meet up after work and he knew I like I needed something to eat like at 5 p.m. But usually we were like going out for the evening and wouldn't have dinner until like seven. And so he would like snag some snacks from his like swanky software developer job where they just have like the best snacks sitting everywhere, throw them in his bag. And then we'd like get on the train and he'd like pull out all these snacks for me. And he's like, what do you want? 
Let's, oh let's like, take care of the beast right now. Like, <laughs> like oh my gosh, it's such a great idea. Uh, um, they call it planful problem solving. <laughs> he was very good at planful problem solving, which is planning ahead for controllable stressors. And uh, I feel like it's a skill that I have worked on as well, just being like, oh, I, I actually could choose to be prepared in this situation. And like, even if we have plans to eat at the nice, cool, hidden gem restaurant, I can stop on the way and grab, like, a mediocre sandwich because, like, that's what my body needs and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Instead of, like, staying on that one-track mind. I think food is such a great example because I do feel like my decision-making skills go out the window. When I hit a certain point of hunger of, like, it is too late. (laughs) We're just going to starve here in our, like, house filled of food (laughs) because I didn't think to cook anything. And now all I have is, like, popcorn that's readily available. So obviously we got some good stuff out of it. Yeah, I think all in all, like, even though we have critiques, as anyone who reads this book will know, the parts we critiqued are, like, not that big. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we did kind of critique the entire structure of the center. Yeah. Book, but that's, <laughs> besides that, <laughs> we think there's great gems in here, great information is being shared, some critiques of how it is communicated. Yeah. <laughs> So if someone enjoyed this book or the concepts presented in it, what recommendations do we have? I would, I mean, we already said it like 17 times in this episode, but if you want to start, go to the episode of Unlocking Us. We will link it in our show notes and see how that conversation resonates with you. There's a lot of great gems in there that I feel like they dug into even a little bit more than they did in this book, considering... They talk about really only the first chapter. And then if you're particularly interested in the stuff we talked about, especially the stuff with the monitor, I think the book itself is like a great read. Uh, skim the sections that maybe don't resonate with you, but like their description of the monitor, I think is worth it on its own. Other books that come to mind, Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. I think they even quote her in their book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we talked about on this podcast, The Wisdom of Your Body by Dr. Hilary McBride, I think is another great example of diving into a specific topic. I think it's even more specific in some ways than this book is trying to be, but also recognizing the intersectionality of experiences, pointing in a lot of great directions to other books and resources that can really help you dive deep into those subjects that Dr. McBride acknowledges like she can't fully do justice in the book she's writing. Yeah. An example of just like peak science communication, You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass by Mike McCarg, which we recommend every other episode, but it's just that good. And then something, another podcast episode that had a lot of overlapping concepts, specifically with the Completing the Cycle chapter, the Fearology, there's two episodes of the Ologies podcast where there's an expert on fear who kind of gets into the fight, flight, or freeze and the relationship between stress and fear. And so there's a lot of overlap. Things we're currently obsessed with, things that bring us joy. I finally started watching Sex Education after Mm -hmm. Julie talked about it 100 times. And (laughs) I was like, I guess fine. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm only like four episodes in. Last week with a client of mine, I had a chance to pretend to be a guest on their like new show that they're trying to launch. It was like the pilot of our pilot. <laughs> like it's never going to like hit the airwaves anywhere, but it was really fun and a great reminder of like what's just like the next immediate step we can take. Like getting the actual guests on the show felt like too big of a first step because like the hosts were wanting to practice a few things and like get some feedback and we're like, "Okay, what's the next possible immediate step let's try it with fake guests let's just bring in other two of us on the on the team putting this together pretended to be guests and we had a really fun time and it was really great so 
it was a good reminder. Just like, just go test your creative ideas. Like you're never going to know by just sitting around planning if something's going to be fun and relatable and enjoyable to be a part of and to listen to. I'm also listening to Under Our Roof podcast. I talked about Semler before, who's a musician. That's Semler is her musician name. Actual name is Grace Baldridge. Her and her wife, Elizabeth, have a podcast called Under Our Roof. And it's just a joy. And it's delightful. Oh, that's fun. I just finished All of Us Are Dead this weekend. The new Korean Netflix teen zombie show. It's, you know, gross. But (laughs) really good. If you need a good cry, man, it's a good time. And... There's a new Epic High album that's very good. Also, very important news. So exciting. (laughs) Story time. Victoria and I are big Taylor Tomlinson fans because we are white women in our late 20s. So she has a podcast called Sad in the City. We've already recommended it multiple times. And part of the show is like, listeners send in emails talking about their own experiences moving to new cities and being sad how they make friends and how they find work and like whether or not they move and asking questions and stuff it's kind of like an old school radio therapy show in a way so i got really inspired one day because she was talking about how she doesn't know how to make friends and i was like I've got great introvert friend making tips and I really want her to have them. So I slaved away on this email. I should have been asleep, but I sat up and I was like, this is the most important thing in my life. And I wrote this email and I was so proud of it. So I sent an email to the podcast and she read it on the show. Oh my God. It was, it was a whole thing. How did you feel when you turned on that podcast episode not expecting anything. And then all of a sudden you hear your name and the words you wrote. <laughs> She's like, this is uh, an email from Julia. And I was like, oh no. And then she started reading it. And then a couple sentences in made a joke about like how relatable it was. And then at the end, she was like, this is a very good email. I lost my shit. Like I was like, I couldn't stop smiling. I was like hiding my face in a pillow because I was so embarrassed and so excited at the same time. (laughs) I think that's the proudest I've ever been of anything I've ever written ever. Says a published author. (laughs) It's like that one email I wrote into Taylor Tallinson's podcast. (laughs) Just the pure joy that I felt like someone reading my writing and immediately getting positive feedback and saying, I find this very helpful. I really liked how it was written. I really liked this specific thing. Like it was specific feedback. It was really positive. It was immediate. I was like, I need this feeling again. (laughs) It was wild. And then immediately texted Victoria. I was like, have you listened to the episode yet? She read my email and she's like, not yet. It was, I started listening to that episode that morning when I was like making coffee or whatever, but that's only like a 15 or 20 minute process for me. And I had paused it literally at the end of the email before because I was like, oh, this is a good stopping place. Yeah. I'm going to go work and I'll come back to this during my lunch break. So yeah, I was like, okay, I have to go hit play. And like, yeah, the very next thing was like, so this next email from Julia. And I was like, ah. I know her. And we're going to leave everyone on a cliffhanger and they need to go listen to Sad You got to go listen to the episode. <laughs> so hear what Julia said. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you for listening to Book Club with Julia and Victoria. We would love to hear your thoughts on this book or the topic we discussed. So you can share your review and recommendations with us on Instagram at bookclubwithjv, on our website, bookclubwithjv.com, or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit our website for show notes with links to all of the recommendations and the things bringing us joy. If you don't already, go ahead and follow us on whichever podcast platform you are listening on so that you can be notified when our next episode is released. This episode was co-hosted and produced by myself, Victoria Brewer, along with Julia Clausen. Rebecca Gasney provides us with project management support. Our music is composed by Greg Brewer, and our logo was designed by Gabby Fabland. Until next time, happy reading.